Welcome to the Theory of DFS podcast. I'm Jordan Cooper, aka Blender at Blender HD on Twitter, the co-author of the Theory of Daily Fantasy Sports. It's a 15-hour audio DFS masterclass at theoryofdfs.com. Join with me this week because once again, Eric is uh, is constantly tweeting out uh, screenshots of of his non-running back teams. It's Michael Leone, two hats, one Mike on Twitter from uh, from established to run, formerly Daily Roto, and I'm I'm assuming I I, I, see, I see your your tweets, and you're 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 in those best ball streets as well. Uh, I wanted to talk a little. I obviously I I I'm not playing best ball. Eric's been trying to get me to play best ball. <laughs> I bet. Uh, and Eric's talked a whole ton about strategy, and I think I think you're on board. I think everyone's as long as all I have to do to know what what if you're in the know is ask how much exposure you have to Darrington Evans. <laughs> That's the uh, secret password to get into the best ball sharps club. Yeah, Eric, he's either posting pictures of his non running back teams or he's posting pictures on a beach somewhere. I feel like Seems why like not both? He could do both yeah. at the same time. I love it. So how much Darrington Evans do you have? I don't have as much as Eric. I'm probably about even. I, I'm not as high on Darrington Evans, so I might have might fail the. Uh, I have some, but not. Uh, he's not one of my highest exposed guys. Like I think Eric and the puppy had like 50 percent or something wild. <laughs> well, go big or go home. Who knows? Who knows what's gonna happen? Hopefully, Derek Henry gets injured in the first week or training camp or something. So uh, for for best ball, I know you're doing a lot of stuff for uh, established to run. I mean, ETR focuses so much on all aspects of fantasy football, not just the daily game, season long, as well as uh, best ball, and also the NBA stuff, like like you and Dink do. Uh, my obviously, like just like with the top shot stuff, like I I'm I'm very risk averse. Like I, I I'm a very I'm very big into seeing if the time is worth the the money like mm-hmm. I, I like that whole that's why i like daily like dfs to me is like the best bang for your buck when it comes to predictive sports analytics or whatever you want to call it or the game of it that you could churn out you could play multiple sports multiple sites every day and churn out an roi so like my biggest bugbear towards like season long has always been like you do it once and like unless you're in like a million leagues, like wh- where's the ceiling on that for the time investment? Now, best ball seems to be the best of both worlds, only because once you draft, like you, there's no fab, there's no trades, there's no waivers, there's no nothing. My concern is the the maturity of the the ecosystem, and I think you probably share the same thing as Eric. Is do you don't think that best ball is mature? Yet, and we could see from the structure right. drafting that's happening that there's still a, there's a massive edge. This is more similar to 2012 DFS. My concern is, what's the appetite to best ball once week one starts? Like, are there going to be like wait week two to the end of the season best ball? Like, what is what is your scope mm-hmm. on the D, on the uh, on the best ball ecosystem as a whole? Because we got underdog, we got DraftKings, drafters. Some sites are better than others at certain things. Yeah, Some have sharper players than others. And... 
Right. Yeah. So, so what, what, what is your take on the, on the best ball ecosystem as a whole? And where, where do you think its ceiling is? Yeah. I mean, I think this ceiling's absolutely massive long-term just because I think this is the way the majority of people might just start playing their season long fantasy leagues. You know, they don't have to deal with waivers in season is a big thing. The most fun of season long fantasy is the draft and you can just do as many drafts as you want because you don't have to worry about setting those lineups come in season. So I think honestly, we're at the tip of the iceberg. We're underdogs, this crazy phenomenon right now where I don't even know how many casual people it's reached. You know, some of these lower stakes tournaments are running like the puppy, you know, they, they had to, it filled in like two weeks. I'm trying to figure out how many people were in that, but it was an absurd amount of people, but it's kind of like these grinders that are like somewhat sharp. But when you pull back the curtain, I think over the next three years or so, we're going to start getting a lot more casual people playing best ball and that could start becoming the more dominant form of how people even play season long fantasy at all. And I wonder if we start getting more, I guess right now, essentially what you have are best ball leagues where you're just playing against, you know, 11 other people and can you win your league or not. And then we have these massive tournaments like the underdog best ball mania, the puppy, the best ball mania for underdog million dollar grand prize, crazy top heavy. I wonder if in the future we start getting some tournaments that maybe like split the difference a little bit, you know, give you a few more price points where it's not this crazy top heavy tournament, but because there's so many people playing best ball, we can offer different options. So that's what I'm hopeful of in the future. That's obviously not happening right now. If you're grinding best ball right now, to a certain extent, it has to be entertaining and fun for you. I mean, you're wrapping up your money for six months or so, and you know, it's not, necessarily the best like straight ROI investment you can make you you definitely have to enjoy it a little bit right but don't you think that the edge here is in those those top heavy or I mean I know what you're asking for is like kind of like the nine dollar slant version on like DK like yeah the DFS. I think like there's a milli like but we that. got the nine dollar slant it's like okay that's <laughs> that that it's still large field but it's not like a million to first steak knives to seventh place type of thing but don't you believe that if if you're right and more casuals go from the season long standard model mm-hmm. into best ball, they're most likely obviously going to going to be approaching it. And we see we see this currently that the drafts that you'd make for to win a 12 team league are not drafts that have, you know, equity, very winning equity in these large field like super contests. So don't you believe that the edge lies for sharper players in those, like the large field stuff because people, and, and also, and also they attract casuals as it is because people, why do people play the million? Why do it, they could yeah, make a little bit of amount of money and win a lot. So these let these 12 right. team leagues where you put, put in five bucks and you could win, you know, 50% of the prize pool, which is what? $30. Like, yeah, yeah you may play a bunch of those, but like, it's not as, as appealing that's to me that's the double up triple up version of dfs so don't don't you think that if this does mature that the edge in the large field stuff that that's what that that's where it's going to be it's not going to be in you know 500 you know 12 team leagues because i take a look at the season long product and it's like anyone that's playing in any i mean i guess there are whales i know you could tell me more about that in order to get a decent amount of money down in season long, like you're playing against the sharpest people in the country, right? 
Yeah, this is where I think season-long fantasy, there's still this edge playing high-stakes stuff where you'd be surprised at kind of the old-school methodologies employed by some of the higher-stakes players out there. And I actually think the edge is, is pretty good there where, honestly, the edge in Best Ball Mania at a $25 price point is probably higher than the edge in a puppy, a $5 price point, where all these people that listen to Eric, listen to the ship-chasing guys – you know, have the ETR ranks are flooding this $5 contest because they can. And this odd dynamic where I think that lower price points actually reduce that. But taking back to like your primary question as if, you know, the basically the Millie maker of best ball, which is what the best ball mania two is, if that has the highest edge, I think it's very similar to DFS where the DraftKings millionaire maker, if you're looking at pure edge, like that's the highest. Now your odds of actually achieving your true ROI are a lot more variant because it's so top heavy. Does that make sense? Right. It, 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 yeah. It, in fact, it's, it's, it's probably, you don't have enough lifetimes in you in order to, in <laughs> right. order to do that. Right. It's the main reason why I don't play the, the Millie often because it's like the, the only EV spots are like the top spots. It's like, the, it, that's it. Yeah. It's like, a, like, and you're probably more plus EV in the Millie than what you play, but you're going to realize your ROI and your, your true ROI a lot faster in other contests and you're less prone to the variance of it. So that's somewhat how I view it. I also probably differ from Eric a little bit in terms of our priorities and like I'm trying to get as many teams through to the finals as possible and he's trying to construct teams that he thinks are really plus EV once they do get through. And we're like probably not that far off, but I'm a little bit more on the the way this tournament's structured with the three uncorrelated tournaments at the end and your points starting from scratch each week, I'm a little bit more on like, let's just get as many teams through as possible. And if that's your thought process, the way you're building isn't that much different than the way you would build it in a regular 12 team league. Like I'm pushing the edges, the boundaries a little bit further, a little more extreme to try and get some monster teams. But overall, my structure isn't you know, vastly different than what I would do if we were just playing a 12 team regular league where I'm just, I'm trying to win that league. Yeah. But don't you think that you're, you're sacrificing ceiling in order to raise your floor, which gives you, gives you more bullets to possibly win first. But don't you think that Eric is building lineups that like, it's one of those things where just like when I play 150 lineups in, in DFS, like the goal is, I don't care if 149 don't cash as long as one like wins first place. Yeah. But I know that in the process of doing that, I will have some slates where I lose 90% of my money. I'd say the difference to me is that week of DFS, we have a little bit, I hate to use the word control because we know how variant it is, but we have a little bit better understanding of what it's going to take to achieve that really high ceiling to get one of those teams that actually has the potential. Whereas in best ball, so much can happen. And again, it's like three it's like three separate DFS weeks at once that are 15 weeks in the future that I'm just a little skeptical that we're actually building teams that have more upside versus. So if Eric got 30 teams through and I got 40 teams through, I'd rather have my 40, you know, versus his 30. If we both got 30 teams through, I'd, I'd rather have his 30. But I think in general, I just rather have more bullets because I think it's going to be really random at the end who actually wins this. And the more of the skill portion of it is getting there. Now, I do agree with Eric with some builds where I am trying to 
you know, push the boundaries and have teams that when they hit are going to be, you know, super monster teams. I'm also cognizant of guys. I think like Todd Gurley last year had a really good win rate in, you know, hyper, hyper fragile teams, teams that you only took four running backs. Todd Gurley had a really good win rate, but he was dead by the end of the season. Like, so I'm aware of those types of players that are going to lose value over the course of the season in a tournament structure specifically, like who cares if I got my Todd Gurley teams through because they're dead anyway. So I'm aware of it to some extent on like the, the archetypes of players that I'm drafting. And if I'm drafting an RB early team, you know, maybe in a 12 team league, I'd take two to three early and four total in best ball mania. Maybe I'll take one to two early and four total and really push it. But ultimately I, I don't see like a massive difference in the, the way I'm building, you know, a traditional league versus the best ball mania. Are you, uh, are you stacking less than? No, I, well, that's the thing is I think the stacking helps. So there is, there's definitely an additional benefit to stacking in best ball mania because of the tournament weeks. But I think that gets a little bit muted over the three week course, but I think stacking is plus EV even in a regular 12 team league, because we know there's a strong correlation among teammates over the course of the season. And then you add in the added benefit of, the, just the way the distributions of multiple stacks on the same team work together over weeks. Like hopefully those are just, you're running pure and those are lining up. Well, you know, your Carolina stack hits one week, your Tampa Bay stack hits the next week. And you're, you know, you've got a better chance of that happening versus if they're all random uncorrelated players. So I'm still pro stacking, but not to the point where I'm sacrificing a ton of value to do it. You know, I looked at stacking research last year and stacking, by and large, was better than not stacking, which we know makes sense. It's pretty intuitive. But there was a break-even point where you started to give up a certain amount of draft capital that not stacking was actually better than stacking. Now, that was just for winning your 12-team league. So that break-even point might be a little bit different if we're talking about our EV in this large field tournament where we do have three playoff weeks and that stack might matter a little bit more. But um I still think you want to be careful about not pushing your stack too far. And I think Eric and I are somewhat in line with that. He's talked about trying to get really good value on some of your stacks. You know, he doesn't want to just complete a stack. He wants to complete a stack where he's getting really strong ADP value in conjunction with it. And if you're super flexible in drafts, there's different ways you can kind of open up different avenues for you to create stacks throughout the course of a draft. So you're a little bit flexible, you're a little bit more malleable. You're not tied to just one stack and that lets you kind of take those gambles on, oh, you know, I drafted DK Metcalf at the 2-3 turn. You know, I don't have to take Russ at 4-5. I can let him fall to 6-7 and and things like that. If you know you have these backdoor outs and also understanding that the quarterback in a lot of ways isn't as critical to the stack as you would think at first glance. Uh, the thing that interested me about best ball, this is w- w- which is why I wanted, wanted to care more about what the ecosystem is going to look like, is... Mm-hmm reacting to it, people that overreact to news or underreact to news. Like for instance, for most people have the same amount of information that, that are, that are playing that from, from an ADP level about the same. Do you, do you believe for these? And I'm talking about not talking about the 12 team leagues. I'm talking about these massive tournaments that like we saw last year with Tyreek Hill. Do you, do you believe that if for whatever he's like, as I've said before on Twitter, I don't pay attention to NFL until a Thursday before the first uh, DFS slate. Like it doesn't matter to me. And DFS, it's a, 
Who's on what team? I don't know. Julio Jones, he's on the Titans now. I know I know that, something <laughs> like that. Uh, that once a player is undervalued and then moves dramatically up the ADP charts for these large field tournaments, it, doesn't it make, it, it intuitively, I'm assuming analytically it does also, it makes no sense to dra- draft them anything worse than his, his past ADP because those teams... Structures like we saw last year with Tyreek Hill possibly getting suspended or whatever whatever happened last year. And Ty- Tyreek Hill is getting drafted like as a flyer in like the 12th round. And then like he's fine. And now he's getting drafted in the second and third round. It's like, is there a point in ever t- for the lot Now in a 12 team league, you could, yeah, sure. You could beat yeah. 11 other people. But for these large fields things, how you, if Tyreek Hill is the, let's say the WR1 on the entire season, like how you possible? You're unlikely to beat teams that draft them in the twelfth round to win a million dollars or whatever the first prize is. Then drafting if you if if you're drafting him in the third round, you almost need him to be the WR one. And if he is, this, like the other teams are going to be so much better. Yeah, it's this weird. You actually, yeah, I'm 100 percent with you. You would actually like not want him to be the wide receiver one if you were the person taking the third round because then that would mean all of these 13th round Tyree kill teams are getting through and you're competing against all those teams. You, you'd really need to thread this needle where like some of those teams didn't get through, but then Tyree kill maybe had a really good playoff run and, and you, it'd be really hard to pull off. So this is one of the biggest distinctions between what I will, you know, this is an example where I will be very different in my 12 team league than the tournament. The example this year is Daryl Henderson with the cam Akers news, you know, cam Akers is out for the season. A lot of people, you know, got Daryl Henderson in the 10th plus round, even later. Even if I think Daryl Henderson's a fourth round value right now, I can't take him there because if Daryl Henderson has a really good year and helps my team get through to the playoff rounds, all these 10th through 12th round Daryl Henderson teams are getting through to the playoff rounds too. And now I have to beat them, not just them collectively, I have to beat the best of those teams three straight weeks it's a really tough hill to climb and that's where you got to channel your dfs mindset it's kind of like if you made 150 teams in dfs and let's say in the slant and the DraftKings slant and you got daryl henderson at you know forty five hundred dollars and then DraftKings changed his price to six thousand dollars right and i've got to make my teams I don't care if he's supposed to be worth $8,000. My $6,000 Daryl Henderson teams aren't going to beat your team. So at that point, I just have to fade Daryl Henderson if I want to be plus EV. You know, it doesn't matter what his value is in a vacuum. So I 100% agree there. Uh, You have to be pretty aggressive. And the thing is, too, you're in a 12-team league. There might be a few people like you who understand this dynamic and let Daryl Henderson slip, but there's not going to be 11 other people that let him slip. Someone's taking him too early. So I won't, you know, I've only drafted 30 best ball mania teams so far. I'm going to have a ton in August, try to get to the 150 max. And I won't have any more Daryl Henderson. I won't, you know, if for some reason he fell to, I know, the eighth, seventh, eighth round where maybe it became like less of a difference, I'd consider it. But that's likely not going to happen. So it's almost moot. Does that, does this also mean that is there an edge now on, on the teams, on your Daryl Henderson type teams that, but when Cam Akers was healthy, that you're taking someone like like Xavier Jones, like the whoever the back like the, whoever the zero yeah. RB guy that when Daryl Henderson gets injured, 
doesn't increase the edge that if you're not going to take Daryl Henderson now, that if you if you're in the 15th, like the Darrington Evans, don't take Darrington Evans in the 15th round, like people are doing. Take so to yeah, try, you're trying Jones. to bust the yeah. you're trying to bust essentially two types of Daryl Henderson teams. The guys that got him in the 10th, the guys that got him in the third, and you're taking a guy in like now the 12th or 13th round that benefits when Henderson gets injured. Yeah, 100%. That makes a lot of sense. It's something I haven't been doing enough. I have to mix in. It's hard because we don't really know who the bet is. But because we don't know who the bet is, the cost is basically free. You know, before we had Cam Akers, I tweeted this earlier today, we had Cam Akers going at the 1-2 turn and Daryl Henderson going in like round 11. Like that's a lot of draft capital. Now we've got Daryl Henderson going in round five and Jake Funk and Xavier Jones going for free. The draft capital devoted to this situation has completely cratered, which means there's an opportunity somewhere unless they make a significant signing, which right now it doesn't look like they're going to do. That's sort of the thorn in the side of the Xavier Jones flyer strategy. But with what knowledge we have to this point, it makes a ton of sense. It's just leverage on leverage. You, if Daryl Henderson has, if Daryl Henderson's going to be in the winning lineup, like you're going to lose anyways to these 11th round Daryl Henderson. Well, unless so you're you have the 11th against, round Daryl Henderson. Yeah. Teams. And those teams you've already drafted. So moving forward, it makes sense to you basically double down your bet against Daryl Henderson. I can't draft him because if he does well, those teams are going to beat me anyways. So now I'm thinking, okay, if I can't draft him, the scenarios where he busts are the scenarios where Xavier Jones, Jake Funk, maybe do a little bit more, whether it's we're wrong about how the role's distributed or Daryl Henderson just gets hurt. To me, this is the more interesting part. This is why I asked about the DF, the, the ecosystem of I'd be more inclined because, like you said, best ball, you're drafting now, you ain't seeing your money for six months. But I wouldn't mind it as much if, like, I could if I could draft, and I know what Eric's doing is like he's weighing is drafting some early, some middle, some late, so he has different types of teams because the information will change. But I'd be much more inclined to be like, okay, I could draft some in July, draft some in August, draft some the week before week one, but then also draft week week two teams that go from two to 17, three to 17. So now that we get more information because we see in DFS, we'll see. I mean, look, look at how people overreact in NFL, right? Some, yeah. Someone will have a good game week one. Someone will have a 20, someone out of the blue will have a 28% target share as a wide receiver three. And it's like, oh, I guess maybe they're the number one for that team. And then the next week they have a 9% target share and, and he's 5,200 and he's 22% owned because people are like, have that one game sample size. I view that similar to best ball of like, I would love to be able to take advantage of those situations. Right. And even though they may not be able to have million dollar contests, for the week two best ball. But if it's going to be the type of thing where the ecosystem just craters that once week one starts, best ball is best balls over. You got your teams and no one really cares much about best ball anymore to actually draft. It's like, I'd like to have that type of strategic edge for much longer. So at least when I'm investing my money, right. I can be much more diversified. I think you're going to get like one crack at that. I don't think you're going to get it from week two to 17, week three to 17, but you might get it from, 
you know, week five, like, cause, cause they need time to fill these tournaments if they're going to be like anything of decent size, but we might get something that's like weeks five to 17, you know, after the first month of the season. Right, so it takes but a whole we'll, five weeks to end. So it's not like every week they have to fill. Something. Yeah. But what'll happen is similar to what Eric's doing, drafting at different points during the summer and having different information, you could probably have different information. Like that contest will be released maybe week two, even though it doesn't start until a few weeks later. Like that's what they do with the playoff contest. So you can draft with different information after week two, different information after week three, but it will be a part of the same slate. I think this is me guessing. You know, this is as big as best ball has been. So we don't hundred percent know what they're going to do in season. I'm trying to think back to what they did last year. I know for me personally, I did kind of forget about it after the season started. Um, but I, I suspect we'll get at least one, pretty big in-season tournament. I'd be skeptical if we got multiple of those at different one or two, you know, like kind of if you split the season in quarters. Right. I, I know, I know when the, the, when, when people are doing bad at DFS, when on Sundays they're mentioning their best ball teams. <laughs> yes. Right. That's, that's always the that's sign. The whenever I, whenever I see a tweet at, 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 at six o'clock, it's like, Oh, you know, McCall Hardman had a touchdown. It's like, that's going well with my best ball teams. I, and I know the person <laughs> is dead in DFS. It was a losing week for sure. I have been there too many times. Uh, so the ecosystem in best ball, like underdog, obviously, from what I could tell, has the best interface and format and tools. And from what I've seen from DraftKings, it's it's not. And but the difference, like you mentioned before, underdog seems way sharper. Yeah. Uh, do you do you, how much of resources do you think platforms like DraftKings, FanDuel that are dealing with sportsbook stuff like like best ball is not is is on the 60th level of their priority list. Underdog, this is what they do. Even drafters, it's a little bit yeah. more towards that. That it comes down to the do I play on the site that makes it easier for me to be more efficient and uh, devise strategies better or go to the place that may be ridiculously much more softer, even though I I don't have the, I don't have, it's going to be, it's going to be a much more manual process and it's not, it's not as, as intuitive to, to draft uh, as you would on underdog. Yeah. That's where it's been difficult for me because I've mostly played on underdog the ability to do slow drafts on underdog and the best ball mania. Like you said, the interface is so good. You know, I never miss a pick or anything. Whereas if I did one slow draft on DraftKings early in the season and I didn't get a notification after the third round, you know, I auto drafted half the team and, and not only that, but their queue systems a mess. like underdog will remove cam makers right away. You can't draft them. DraftKings, you get timed out. You're getting cam makers in the draft. He's still up there on the ADP. So you do, if you have the time to do fast drafts, I, you know, it makes sense to do those on DraftKings. Like if you can carve out times to do fast draft, fast drafts in general are softer than slow drafts because you know people are on the clock, they don't have time to think through decisions. It's a game on the fly, so fast drafts right off the bat are, I think, more plus EV than slow drafts. And then if you do it on DraftKings, where people can't like upload the ETR rankings, like people on Underdog can just in two seconds, upload the entire ETR rankings for underdog. You can't do that on draft. Yeah, but what edge do you have in doing so, that though? Like if, well, you, were, if think, you were to upload the ETR rankings and auto drafted, like do those teams even have a, I mean, well, not if you're auto drafting, 
Right, well, but, but I mean, I mean uh, so you're using the ranking just so you have something there, so you're manually putting in. Yeah, so you're not missing, I mean. Right, I'm, I'm just, I'm just, I'm, what, I'm, what I'm trying to say is like, it's very similar to DFS with, oh, I, I'm, I'm going to get, I'm going to, I'm going to subscribe to a site for projections and then press the 150 button with nothing else and just get me, get, give me the top 150 median lineups that have no correlation or any type of ownership considerations. Like you don't, you don't, th- do you, you have to think that people do draft. Yeah, you I, have mean, to, I mean, people you have do it in DFS. Critically. I still like, I think you're better off using the ETR rankings as your base than you are the straight ADP on underdog. Right. But, but it also is like self-fulfilling to an extent where if enough people are doing that, that's going to push the ADP and influence the ADP. So that's not going to happen on DraftKings, which is nice if you have your you know list up, whatever, wherever your rankings are, whether it's ETR or somewhere else. Like that's going to be very different than the default DraftKings interface. Like you're going to find a lot more values and just because they're not high up, especially in a fast draft. So I've had a hard time though, because I just really haven't had time to do fast drafts. So I'm mostly doing slow drafts. The site I've played a lot on is FFPC. They have a higher price point tournament and it really fits the way I draft well. And I think the ADPs aren't as sharp as underdog. So for me, that's been a good middle ground between DraftKings and underdog is playing the FFPC $125 entry tournament. I've been doing a lot of those. How, how, how long does it take to do a fast draft? Like 45 minutes. Oh, 45 minutes. I mean, <laughs> that isn't that long. It's not that long, but if you want to do a substantial amount of them, like it, it adds up. Right, but you have to use can't your whole 45 minutes. Some of us can't tune into football the Thursday before the season, okay? We've been grinding <laughs> football for months, getting content out, okay? So it's, it's uh, I mean, I, I do some fast drafts. I'm just saying I, it's hard to do a lot of them. Like, if you could make that as high as percentage of your teams drafted as possible, like, that's the most plus EV from, like, just a straight money standpoint. Right, because what you okay, I, I see what you're saying, but if you enter a whole bunch of, like, let's say you enter 10 slow drafts, you could enter 10 at once and different times it'll be your pick. Yet with a fast yes. draft, it's like you can only do one, dra- like you can't sign up for multiple because you have to stick, you're basically paying attention for 45 minutes straight because it's going by this quickly. Yes. So, yes. and I think okay, Eric now even I get posted, it. he tried to do like five puppy drafts at once and like, you know, he, he burned two teams. You know, all it takes is one missed auto draft pick and you burn a team. Now there are people I'm sure that are, you, know, you can multi table a little bit, you know, maybe do two at once if you're really on top of it. But, but yeah, it, it's, it is a hard to stay. And it's, part of it depends what you're trying to get out of it. If you really are just trying to straight maximize edge and you have the time to devote to it though, you know, DraftKings, your edge is going to be higher. Like the teams you can build there are going to be way better than the teams you can build on underdog, especially for, an overall type contest. Okay, so let's let's go over to DFS now because I've, I've, once once you, once you, once I heard that forty five minutes for a fast draft is like that's too much time. It's like let's go to DFS where you can take almost no time to do anything, right? But let's go to the easiest the the easiest thing. Uh, last year, I mean, you you were on a bunch. Of, you're, I mean, you're on a bunch of shows normally, right? ETR. You're you're getting drunk with Pete Overzet on on, <laughs> on, on picking teams and whatever. Uh, one thing that you, you harped on, or you've at least focused on last year from, from what, from what I've seen and heard is that you focused and Eric, very, very similar to Eric on these smaller field, 
higher stakes DFS contests, similar yes. like the luxury box, right? Like those, ty- even the Thunderdome, right? That's the smallest high stakes types of contest where overstacking and, you know, you don't need to get everything right in order to win those. Uh, the overall theme, if, if you want to have one theme of this podcast since me and Eric started it uh, last October, is my, it's it's my, my uh, kind of like, like it's I don't know cognitive dissonance. It's my uh, it's, it's my issue with the fact that the smaller field stuff has like you would have to agree. Let's just get it at, 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 uh, out of the way. Playing small field contests in DFS and playing large field contests in DFS are almost like two different games. Yes, I would agree with that. For sure. And it's sometimes really misunderstood. The things you should be doing in small field are sometimes what people think you should be doing in large field and vice versa. So it's really an interesting dynamic. Or the ways to be contrarian in large, like like a lot of times I say that I'm actually more contrarian in small field than I am in large field. And I like, why would you be more contrarian in a, in a 200 person thousand dollar contest than you would be in a 290,000 entry, whatever. It's like, well, the amount of dead money there is in the, in the such large field, like the players that are high owned, they're still over owned, but they're nowhere near as over owned as they are in the small, in the like, like playing Derrick Henry at 28% ownership in the large field. Maybe, maybe you believe his efficient ownership is 24%. Well, it's, it's still close enough and he's still the highest projected running back. So I could still build plus EV teams. But if you tell me in small field he's going to be forty eight percent owned, it makes it easy for me to just x him out, and like it makes it like you're just get, making it easier for me to not play those guys and still play a high projected team. But that's where the issue comes in, mm-hmm. Mike. That the smaller field contests have sharper players, so like the the floor of your lineups, like are. The, the floor of, of, of cashing, of, of winning in the, in the smaller field stuff is much higher than the larger field stuff. But if you, if you just took a look at just purely the dead money, yes, like you said before with the large best ball contests, realizing your EV is the hardest, is, is the number one challenge of playing the large field contest. Getting the EV is the easy part. Like get building, a, I could build 150 right. plus EV teams, no problem for the Millie. The problem is, is that, I'm going to need 700 lifetimes or, or in a, in a $70 million bankroll in order to survive realizing that EV. Then in the small field stuff, like even in the, even in the spy, which is for like 4,000 entries and a hundred bucks, whatever, like the average strength of a lineup is way higher. There's much less dead money in there, but it's easier for me to realize whatever I may have less ROI, less EV, but it's easier to realize that's to me, that's the conundrum of like every time I go, I, I, I focus most of my DFS career on large field contests because that's where the, I, I come from poker. I'm like, I want to go to the easiest table possible. Give me, give yeah. me nine schmucks. I don't care that they're raising and I don't care. I'll sit there and wait, wait with my, I wait for eights King and I'll wait for the premium hands and then make more money than I should on them. I have no problem doing that or taking advantage of weak type tables and running them over. I have no problem with that. But then you look at a game where like the high stakes, high stakes poker, a lot of times it's, 
It's played shorthanded. It's six people at a table and it's five of the best players in the world and one rich businessman. And it's like that what? one rich businessman pays everyone, but it's like you have to battle four other sharp players in order to try to get his money that which is which is more worth it. It seems like like your attitude is that that there is enough of an edge the way that you play for smaller field contests. And I think Eric echoes this that there's st- that it's weird to say some of the more known sharper players uh in in the DFS ecosystem uh are playing so much and so wide that they're not focused enough on the individual contests that you do you, you exploit that and while they make it up in volume you kind of go in as a sniper and go well you know if if people if 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 half the thunderdome field is going to play their cash lineup in it how do I exploit that? Yeah, that's a hundred percent. The dynamic is, and as the contest gets higher stakes and smaller in a weird way, I think my edge actually increases because more people are just playing their cash lineup. You know, um, empire maker makes probably the highest in terms of expected scoring point lineups. He probably makes the highest of anybody in all of DFS, but the Thunderdome to him is, you know, that, that's, that's 1% of his volume, 1% <laughs> of his output for me, I'm sweating bullets, man. So for him, it's 1%. So if there's other people like that and they're just throwing their cash lineup in, I'm playing against 30 people who are playing cash lineups. They're all playing the same way. You know, if you were playing against a poker table, even if the players were all really talented, if they all played the exact same way, you, you could probably take advantage of that in some way. And that's what I feel like I'm doing. Like there are times where there's there's three team dupes in a 30 man field. Now this is getting extreme. I'm talking Thunderdome 30 man field. I mean, more realistically, people are playing like even like 200, 300 man. Um, there was like a $400 contest. I forgot what it was called. Maybe the Juke last year that I liked a lot. But I mean, there were three teams duped in a 30 man field. That's 10% of the field that has the same lineup. Like you're plus EV almost on on that alone. And then. God, one of the weeks I did well, it was the week that people played Zacchaeus from, from right. Atlanta. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I remember that. He and was, he fucking did nothing. And he, he must he have been like 60% owned and like whatever. 60% owned. There were three 60% owned wide receivers that week. You know, like there was a week Robbie Anderson was 60%. And wide receivers just volatile. And it's not that these were the wrong picks. Like in a vacuum, they were probably the best picks like towards the optimal lineup. But I can bet against failure. And then you mentioned like the risk of ruining these tournaments because the there's definitely going to be weeks where you're just dead. You know, the chalk hits in a certain way, you're dead. But there's also going to be weeks where you don't necessarily bank, but Zacchaeus fouls, your min cash equity is pr- probably not as bad as you think it is. Like it's not, might not be as all or nothing in these tournaments than you might be thinking because if Zacchaeus fouls at 60%, I don't need to beat that many lineups or do that well to just hit the, even on the min cash barrier. Like, obviously I want to win. And I think the motto, if you're playing any small field tournament is win the low scoring slates, you know, that's, those are the slates you want to win. Can I win with the lowest score possible is sort of like a challenge for me sometimes. But, um, but yeah, I think your floor, I don't want to say your floor is higher, but I don't think it's as shaky as you think to like be able to reach that min cash level because, when the chalk fails, you, you don't need to 
come anywhere near hitting the nuts, you know, to get a lineup in there. And that's the thing with correlation too. If I'm in a small field tournament, 200 minute tournament, I can overstack to an extent because I know I don't need to hit the nuts to win. Right. I just want to reduce the amount of things I get right. If the game goes off, I'm okay. If I took, you know, Justin Jefferson, Adam Thielen and Irv Smith, right? Like Justin Jefferson goes nuts and Adam Thielen and Irv Smith just do okay. Like I'm fine with that. You know, they, I got two guys that didn't bust and I got one guy that went nuts. That's fine for me. You do that in the Millie Maker or even the slant, you're probably dead, right? You know, you need yeah, to but hit a people ceiling. do that. But the thing is, yeah, the, the weird thing is, is that typically adding correlation to your lineups increases the variance of the lineup. I mean, like that's it, it, same same thing for relative value when it comes to you know playing lower owned players. Like you're incre- you're increasing your likelihood of winning first place or last place, right? By doing so. But the thing is, is that that. The other th- the other thing that people don't take into account is that the the field size gives a lot more permutations of lineups that are available that like in in the Thunderdome uh when the when the when uh, Khalif Raymond at you know in he's he's 0.8% owned in the Millimaker and he has 200 yards and two touchdowns on like two long plays like the light the He's more likely to be in the winning lineup in the Millie Maker as a one-off. Some rent, who knows? Someone misclicked the button or someone, someone <laughs> yeah. has him. But in the Thunderdome, like the like, Nobody literally, it literally doesn't matter. And that's one of the things I was saying where people have it backwards. Like they think they need to stack more in the Millie Maker, like more correlation. There's a point of diminishing returns, as you noted, as the field size gets bigger. There's a point of diminishing returns with the correlation where. Like your odds of three guys on the same team hitting a 75th percentile ceiling are increased together, but the odds of them all hitting a 90th plus percentile ceiling, it starts to actually reduce. And right. you need all three guys that a 90th plus percentile ceiling if you're going to beat 500,000 other people. If you need to beat 199 other people, you know, you you just need a lineup that has like a couple breakouts and a bunch of guys that don't bust, you know, and you're fine. Or, or just outscoring the busts that half the field has, you know, Derrick Henry has, you know, one of the biggest weeks I had last year was Derrick Henry was 40% owned in the juke against the Jaguars week two or whatever. He scores nine points. I've got Aaron Jones at 10% owned. He scores 40 points. Like obviously that type of thing doesn't happen that often, but you're almost winning tournaments off that alone right like when you're in small field if you're in the million maker you still need a lot of other things to go right if i'm in a small field that's it like i i had a great week i mean like i really would have to mess it up for me to not cash and not cash pretty highly on that alone right like i had a big week when uh when mixon had his like four touchdown whatever game and yep. he was like five percent owned and whatever because someone someone else was the more owned running back in that range and it's like like what else? What else do I need? And typically in the large field stuff, I play three plus ones. Like typically, what I find in the large field is that obviously the 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 two the three man stack, which is the quarterback and two pass catchers, makes makes sense when the second pass catcher is cheap. Mm-hmm. So like not it's not Cousins, Thiel, and Jefferson. It's it's Irv Smith. It's like the tight end or so like. The chances yes. of the 90th percentile on two 7K running, 7K wide receivers, like the Godwin plus Evans type of, th- like I never made those because they would have to put up 60 points for that to have, like, I mean, like for them to be the highest score. So to me, 
it's that it's that three man stack with the core because you want the quarterback to be the highest owning the highest scoring quarterback. So most likely two of their pass catchers put up ceiling scores. But then what people don't do in the, the large field stuff enough is do the the run back. Like to yeah, to me, just... you'll see the three man, but you may not see the plus one of the receiver from the other side of the game in that. So to me, that that's the most optimal way of playing like the slant or the millie or stuff like that. But then in the smaller field, you almost want to play. I mean, you could play four plus twos and I mean, three, three plus threes. And you could, I mean, you could essentially say, what game do I think is going to score the most points? Right. And just, just who care? I mean, like you, you t- I'll, t- I'll take, I'll take cousins, cook, Jefferson, Thielen, Smith, and then play yeah. one receiver from the other. And like, that's, that's my team. And a as long as the Vikings put do, up 45 points, I win. Yeah, you do a game stack and then maybe one high leverage pivot, like the mix-in thing. You know, you do a game stack, one high leverage pivot, and then just maximize your points on the other guys. And to your point about the double stack, we just released an article on ETR, How to Win the Millie Maker, which, you know, it's very easy to win the Millie Maker. Right, just, just, do they, these just read the article and you want it, right? That's it. And you would. But the field play double stacks... 29% of the time last year. What do you consider a, a double stack? Uh, like like two wide receivers and a quarterback. Okay, two, okay. So, two pass catchers and a quarterback. So I consider, I, I call 20, that a three-man. Three so it's the three-man, 28% of the time. But the teams that finished top 100 in the Million Maker did it 40% of the time. So a lot of leverage there. And same thing with the bring back. You know, the field's bringing it back about a third of the time. The top 100 teams brought it back over half the time. So... Not only does it hit at a high rate, but it's hitting at a much higher rate than the other teams, which is most important. Like uh, you're getting positive leverage on that in addition to, to it being a good idea. So, uh, yeah, the data definitely lines up with what you're saying there. So, so you're looking at past it. Are, are I mean, I, I've never discussed with your process or anything, but I mean, do you do you play NFL DFS more by regressing past data or running simulations on current data? I play it. Can we can you repeat that again? I no, like, make- like, like, like your analysis for that, for instance, is you like we look, we could look at last year, and then see yeah. what the top one hundred. But that's much different than looking at week one before it happens and go, well, based on our range of outcomes, based on you know some type of percentile projections, or you're doing obviously like game play simulations, and you just ran the contest, you just basically mm-hmm. run all the games and then run the contest and then see what. You know, based on your and you assuming your ownership and your player projections are reasonably accurate, then seeing, well, based on our simulations for week one before it happens, you know, 28% of the teams would be here, but 35, like, are, are is that part of your process on a week to week basis? Or are you thinking more? Because we see so many articles. It's a little bit. That, that my, only, my only bugbear with it that, that I'm, why I'm saying it is that, that we look at a season of NFL DFS and go, well, that's a season. It's like it's 17 weeks. It's like the sample size is so small that what do I, last year could have been an outlier that certain types of things happen, but like, mm-hmm. like you, I want 10,000 slates, but there hasn't been 10,000 slates. So I, I view the value of, yes, it's nice to see what happened in a 17 game, 17 slate sample size, but it, to me, it doesn't mean as much as people, it's more likely to be correct, but you shouldn't like, that's like the stone nut lock. Yeah. I mean, to your point, we looked at the quarterback data like we did this article last year and the quarterback data would have said last 
We did this article last year for 2017 to 2019. The quarterback data would have said, you'll go cheap at quarterback. That didn't did work that last all, year. No, you, were, you had to adjust quickly. You know, you, it was a new dynamic, the, the way the NFL is changing. There's higher ceiling, more predictable ceiling, and there's just more guys to be up top at quarterback. So you have to adjust. So I do a little bit of both. Like I do some simulation stuff to kind of get the odds of, you know, Derrick Henry certain, hitting certain points. Like if I know he's going to be mega chalk. I look at the past data just because I think it, it is important to understand what your opponents are doing, you know, because there is like a point where double stacking would be a bad idea if it was being done too much by the field, right? Like at a certain point, it'd be negative leverage if the field was overly double stacking. So I like to have an sense of what my opponents are doing. I'm looking to pass data for that. But really the way I'm approaching the small field tournaments is, again, like it's really simplistic, but I'm trying to find out what's my highest edge scenario of the week and how can I take advantage of that? And that's not always the same thing. One week it might mean there's a stack that's going to be under-owned or maybe not even under-owned. I just think there's a stack with an incredible ceiling and I want to figure out how to build around that stack. And if it's a little bit chalky, I know I'm going to have to get some leverage elsewhere. Another week might be, oh, wow, this running back, Derrick Henry's going to be way over-owned this week. I know I can leverage it with Aaron Jones. Like That's my edge this week. I want to maximize that. So I'll build you know, a pretty regular team around that. So I'm kind of just trying to hone in on where my edge is and I'm using the past data to help me to do that. I'm using some simulation stuff to help me to do that. I'm not at the point where I'm simulating like a full slate and I'm simulating exactly what the field's going to do. And I'm saying, okay, this lineup spits out as the most plus EV. I'm just going to play this lineup. I'm not quite there. It's a little bit more field-based, I guess. I mean, that, but conceptual, conceptually you're there. Yeah. I mean, you're doing that, you're yeah. doing that in a, in a, in a manual what I mean, that's, a, that's yeah. the, you're doing it the same way I do it, right? Like I'm not running those things, but I mean, conceptually I'm thinking of it that way. The thing, the thing that yeah. separates me and you is that you're able to come, you and Eric, you're able to come up with the one choice that see that that's, that's, that's my, that's, that's the thing that I could look at a slate and go, there's an edge here. There's an edge there. There's an edge. Like I could see where all the edges are. And then when I'm playing the $9 slant, I'll be, well, I'm going to take advantage of this by playing 80 lineups and some yeah. will go this way and some will go that way and some will go, but I see I can make the same EV lineup that has Derrick Henry and the one that doesn't have Derrick Henry, but I have both of them. So to me, I don't care if Derrick Henry has a good or a bad game. I just wish it's one of the two. I don't, I actually don't want Derrick Henry to have an average game. I want it to be either 40 points or nine points. And I have all those types of lineups. And then when it gets down to making my my single entry like teams or like the power sweep or something like that, like th to me, I put that at the last part of my process when like I've been trying to work on that with like NBA and MLB. So like an MLB, I'll say, okay, I'm making a one $250 ball four team. And I'm like, I think the biggest edge is is fading this pitcher and stacking against him. It's like, okay, I'm going to do it. But knowing in baseball, the variance is so high that you're going to miss so often just, but right. just to get me in the mindset of being able to, to, to where, like to me that, that as, as a large field multi-entry player, I mean, I also play cash games. I, I could play a cash line. I'm sure. But I know that's not, that's negative EV in those contests, but it's just, it's just getting, getting that mindset of, of like, I, I got, I got one shot. What's my best one. And then, then the, the, the regret of like, I think there are two big edges on, on this slate 
I think this one is slightly better. And then the second, the one that you also thought of, that would have won. And it's like, well, I don't have to worry about that because I'm playing, I'm playing a hundred lineups. So like, I have yeah. that lineup also. It's a different mindset for sure. I I do though. Usually, I'll play like five or six teams, right? So I, I'll hedge a little bit. Like if I have two things I think are big edge, I'll split them up. Uh, you know, maybe I'll put them together in the same lineup or like I have. I usually play about six-ish teams. That's about my sweet spot for the amount of teams I'm playing. Now, I generally have one team that's lopsided in terms of the money I have out. You know, if I'm playing the Thunderdome or even if I'm playing, you know, the $1,500 luxury box, that that's usually an outsize versus, you know, I'm playing three teams in the, you know, the 777 or I'm playing three teams in the 400. And you just have to live with that. I mean, yeah, but at least you're playing a couple of teams. I do that also. Yeah, so I'm playing a couple. It's of not th- just one team though. I'm not playing the same team in everything. I know sometimes the people that play small field play the same teams in everything. I don't play the same team in everything. I'm trying. I am trying to get good at one of the things I think I did too much last year was I was finding a lot of my edge cases in like individual leverage spots. And then I'd really spread out my stacks and I'm trying to get to a spot this year where I'm more comfortable being heavier on the stack. If that's really what's, you know, I think is driving my edge is the actual stack and the ceiling of that game. even if it's going to be owned and just knowing the different ways I can get different around it. I think I, a lot of times I hedge too much on the stack portion of things. And then I was really heavy on the individual leverage portion of things. Right. Cause you don't have to hit. I mean, like, if you're playing five lineups, you don't have to hedge. Like, if you decide... You decide yeah, hedge is probably the wrong word. Right, like, yeah. it, to, to me, it's a matter of identified different... Like, if you identified... These two games are going to be under-owned, and I could overstack them. And if that means that I don't have Derrick Henry in any of my five lineups, then then that's then that's, then that's what it is. But it's a matter of finding the edge. Like, like, like we're, we're both... We're, we're trying to be edge lords, Right. You're, yeah. you're, you're trying, right? I, I don't know. I, it, it, it's, it's kind of the. You don't know which edge is going to be the best, but you know you have a couple of these, and the way that it worked, like t- to me, that's not hedging. That's hedging yeah, would hedge mean hedging would mean board. playing one stack and then playing the complete stack against the, like the lineup that, yeah. like you take a look at one lineup and go, if this lineup succeeds, this lineup fails. Like that's a hedge. Like two, both games could go off. I mean, like it could be. That you 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 target two games and they both go off for sixty points, just that one scores more than the other and and so be it, right? It could be that mm-hmm. that that Derrick Henry fails or doesn't fail. You have him in all your lineups, or you don't have him in any of your lineups. But you're not. But if if one lineup works based on Derrick Henry failing, having a lineup with Derrick Henry in the next spot, all you're doing is diversifying. You're not like you don't have to do that. Like some people think they right. have to do. Hedging, but to me, it's just then you're playing above your bankroll at that. You shouldn't be playing the step down in contests and then just choose the best one rather than like don't don't play a thousand dollar lineup that fails when another thousand dollar lineup succeeds because like then just go down to the five hundred dollar contest and play one of them. You have to be willing to accept weeks that if something happens, you're going to lose that week. You know whatever that is. You know if you're wrong on your edge case. You're gonna lose. You're a bad you know, edge lord, and, that, and that's that's. Can we, okay. can we just call ourselves the edge lords? The edge lords. If you're, and to your point too about 
having a couple lineups that aren't necessarily hedged but diversified. Sometimes in these small field tournaments, you can be off on ownership quite a bit. You know, you can think, especially in the really small field, a guy could be, you might think he's 30 and he's 60, you know, right. and it's, it's a big difference. So or or, or the other way he, around also, Mike. Yes. You could see a guy like, oh, he's going to be like 10% owned in the Millie. And then you go, you, you play, you play the, the luxury box and you're like, he's 2% owned. And right, it's like you where, and two other people have him, and that's it. That's where diversifying lineups, even in small, if you only got five or six, makes sense because right off the bat, you know, when the slate locks at 1 p.m., one of those lineups might be way more EV than the other for something that you were just wrong on ownership-wise. Do you do you adjust in those types of situations for the 4 p.m. games? Like how much how much do you play, in especially in the smaller field stuff, uh, the 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 late swap. Now, obviously, there's an edge there. I mean, I, I, to say zero is going obviously the wrong answer. But just in the case of when you know much more about ownership, like I think, I think that to me, that's the most useful times where you have a you have a one p you have like let's say a couple of chalk pieces. You don't may have them, but you know you know about what the ownership is going to be, and then maybe three high owned guys in the one p.m. games and three high owned guys in the four p.m. games. But then you look at like, oh, well, this running back that I thought was going to be 28% owned ended up coming in at like 15% owned, which means the running back from the 4 p.m. game is going to be way higher owned than I thought. And maybe you have him in the lineup and you're like teetering and you're like, like, well, you could plug him in and min cash or now that you know that you get much more leverage by not having them. Now you rearrange your lineup and try to try to win a small field contest that way. I mean, obviously, we're That's- talking about stuff that most people don't do. But how much do you do it? I do that quite a bit. I mean, the small fields, that's a really big edge because, I mean, if you're playing the Millie Maker and you reach some of these decisions, a lot of times you're dead anyways, right? Like someone on your team didn't do well. I mean, you can maybe save some min cash equity. But if you're in a higher stakes tournament, well, first of all, that min cash equity matters a lot more. But two, there's like more routes to survive that and actually winning a tournament with someone who's cold early. And it's also easier to de- determine, as you said, when ownerships lock, you can back into what people have a lot easier in a smaller field tournament, especially the people that you're competing against. And if people are throwing their straight cash lineups in these tournaments too, they're not going to go in, they're going to change their whole lineup or none of their lineups. A lot of the time, they're not going to go in and individually change. I have five to six tournament lineups. I can go in and individually change each one based on the tournament I'm in. So I had one week too. Sometimes I'll even plan ahead. I had one week, the one week I did really well, finished second in the Thunderdome. I took Antonio Gibson and I think someone from the lions early and I really leveraged against some chalk running backs early. And I knew if I hit, I can stack. I think I'm remembering the week correctly. I might be combining weeks, but I can stack this chalky Bills Arizona game at 4 p.m. if I hit early. If I don't, I have to get off of it. I hit early, and that gave me the confidence to stack that Bills Arizona game, not caring about the ownership because. I already got my leverage. Now I'm just maximizing my points at this you know, point in time. Whereas had I started, if had both those games been at 1 p.m., you know, I might not have won that week because I might have galaxy brained myself out of playing the Bills Arizona stack because the ownership. But knowing that I would have that information ahead of time, you know, allowed me to start with that Bills Arizona stack 
and have the freedom to get off it had my leverage plays not worked out early, which quite often they don't. And you do have to pivot. And, the, and these types of strategic decisions are, it's weird to say, they're easier to make typically in this higher stakes, smaller field contest because your opponents are more predictable. They, yes. they don't make, they don't make mistakes, but they're more predict. It's, it's similar to poker, right? Cause the, the whole trope in, in, in poker is a, Oh yeah. A three, you can't beat three, six or something because no one respects your, I'm going to move up where they respect my raises type of thing. It's like, no, you want them to call when you're, you're, you're getting the best of it. Like, and if they draw out on you, then so fucking what that that's, you're, it's plus EV. That's what you should be doing. But in the in in the smaller in the in the larger field stuff, like we had that week last last year with Tony Pollard, right? Yeah. And uh, like playing large field stuff, like once that news came out at eleven thirty, like Smash. I just yeah I smashed it right because <laughs> I like it. But the thing is, is that in in the smaller field, higher stake stuff, you have to expect Pollard to be much, much higher owned because there are much more observant opponents. Now, I'm not talking about that specific case, but when it comes to late swaps and determining what lineups to play and how to exploit that, like you, it's not like the type of thing where like it, based on the ETR projections, this guy is popping. It's not like, you know that the rest of the field is, this, this guy ain't going to go unnoticed, right? Yeah, but in the, the small, in the smaller, in the, in the larger field contest, sometimes you get guys that are, you know, popping in the blitz or popping in ETR that end up coming in 8% owned in the Millie maker because it's like the only people that are on them are the people from like the people that have the two projection sets and that's about it. But in the smaller field stuff, like all those, you're not going to find many people that are, aren't at least aware of that information. Yeah. I think that Pollard example, I think I told Dink to lock him on FanDuel that week. And I, meanwhile, I'm in the DraftKings live final and I didn't even play him. And I actually got the ownership a little wrong there. Did you not be, play him because you thought he would be overowned? I thought he would be overowned. Yeah. What I mean, did he, what but, did he end up coming, uh, coming in in that contest? He came in at like 30%. He was fine. He right, but you fine. thought he would be mega like 65 plus something like that. Yeah. Or somewhere in between at least. Um, and he, and in the large up, field, I think, I think in the large field, he was like, 12% owned or something. Yeah. And on FanDuel, it's usually even, a even little... more because the, the contests are softer on FanDuel. Also. Yeah. They're softer. So that's where you can really push your projections as is like the late news. You can push that in the large field MME. And that's sometimes that's a pain in the ass, quite frankly, doing, because there's nothing worse than like, Oh, I got this projection, right? I nailed this, but I, I didn't play the guy because I thought he would be owned too much or maybe he was owned too much and it just is what it is. But uh, so there are things that at times are easier to do in large field, which is sometimes slamming the best plays if it's like late news. But sometimes there's things that are easier to do in small field, which is, again, like you said, these chalk guys aren't as owned in the large field. So sometimes it's harder to find the break even point on them, whereas I'll just know chalk running back A is going to be over owned and, you know, the hundred wide tournament. receiver du jour at 3,800, right? It's whatever, yeah, you know, like, right? So you're going to get a, like a Jalen Ray. Oh, this guy's out and this guy's out. And everyone just assumes that this guy's going to just get 28% target share. And it just turns out they play seven wide receivers. And it's just easy to systematically each week just not play that guy. You know, like, because you, you know he's going to be 25% plus owned. Whereas to your point, like he might still end up 8, 10% in the Millie Maker. And that's a huge difference. Like that's a really really big difference.
Especially when it comes to the wide receivers, in my opinion. Yeah. Those cheaper, because the cheaper wide receivers lead to really chalky build types. So do, yes. do, so do you view, in the to me, in the small field stuff, I do this in basketball a lot, is that a lot of times my lineup is purely contrarian because I go just whatever the opposite of that build type is, I'm just playing the best lineup of that. So when when we see in NBA, sometimes some guy is out and we have a $4,700 power forward that is going to, instead of getting 27, we have a Bobby Portis game type of thing. And it's like, you know, he could easily just foul out or they could run Ilyasova. They could, I mean, they they could change their rotation a little and maybe he only still only gets the same rotation. He ends up being like 65 to 70% owned. And it's like, well, a lot of people like, especially on like the Roto Grinder shows, they like, what, what's the, oh, he's going to be chalk. What's the pivot? Right. And go, what other yeah, 47? It's like, no, no, the goal is to not play a 4,700, a 4K range power forward. Your, your goal is to play uh, Julius Randle that slate. Right. So if, if, yeah. why, if, if people are going down, if the construction in NFL is like, oh, if over 20 per, plus percent own on these two like 4K wide receivers, it's like, well, this is the time to play cheap running backs and expensive wide receivers and just play the best of that lineup. And, if those cheap wide receivers don't do well, it's better than trying to find another 4K wide receiver that outscores that 4K wide receiver because you're really not being all that different in your lineup as in a whole. Yeah, I 100% agree. I do that quite frequently. You also have more outs, right? You know, if there's a chalk 3,500 receiver, if he fails miserably, you're obviously super happy, but he could also score 15 points, which is good on a per dollar basis. And it doesn't matter that much. You know, you're on a completely different build. You have a lot more. Whereas if you're doing the pivot thing you said, now all of a sudden you need your $3,500 receiver to score more than 15 points. And even if he scores 18 points, it's like, wow, you picked up, you know, three points on the field. Like that's, it's not nothing, but it's not a big deal. So I do that quite often. It's also another thing that's a little easier to do in small field because you do get that obvious cash build each week that you can, work off of you and mean, there's you mean the collusion build the secret chat build? <laughs> the collusion build the secret there's chat also build. <laughs> guys like and a one week i got travis kelsey you know stupid low owned. i think i might have been the only person in the thunderdome where travis kelsey that type of dynamic you can just not get in a large field tournament like there's certain players especially the high priced high volume players they might be under owned but you they always come with a base amount of ownership in, in large field tournament. I feel like, I don't know, maybe I'm off. You play large field more than, whereas sometimes in a small field, because of the one type of build, you can get one of these, like a Devonte Adams type, at like a huge, huge edge to the field, just because there's not as many iterations out there. People aren't running through their combinations as much. They're hand building more and they're all hand building the same type of lineup. And you just know they can't, Make any iteration of this lineup with Devonte Adams; it just can't be done. Right, it's a, it's a lineup construction issue. I mean, I I do I do very much the same in, in MMA. I know you probably don't play MMA DFS. That no. it's very binary because there's only so many combinations that there could be. So, like on a 13 fight slate, you're pretty much there's 26 fighters and you're not playing fighters against each other. But people don't realize what people do is they do the same mistake of like, well, I'm going to play the high price favorites and low price underdogs, but Instead of the chalk underdog, I'm going to take the, the, the other underdog. Like, and it's like, well, your lineup still looks the same. 
said, why don't you do that lineup but just leave 1,000 on the table and play the, the mid-range fighter instead? It's like, yeah, but I want to play the height. Like, like, no, you'd rather be different. Everybody does. Right. Yeah. You'd rather be different. And then you don't, and then people don't take into account, like, what is the level, like in MMA, you'd, Mike, you'd love MMA. But if you, if you like the leverage stuff, because there's, it's all yeah. binary. It's not like NFL where like one team, whatever. It's like, well, if this guy wins, then this guy loses. So like if the high price, like this guy's going to be 52% owned. So I'm just going to play his opponent who's 9% owned because when the chalk fails, the 9% guy has the seal. Like it's like directly there. Yeah. And then you could make the lineup construction. That's com the complete, like you could literally look at the chalk lineup and go, I'm going to play the six opponents of these guys and li you're literally flipping the entire lineup. Now, you may not do that in, like, every lineup or something, but it's so one-to-one. -one. But that's essentially for, like, the small field GPPs. Like, that's what, that's what to me, that's what I tried it. Like, to me, I look for everyone's going to be on this running back. I'm going to play the passing game. Or everyone's going to be on the passing game. So I'm going to be on the... So, like, I'm not saying because people look at me funny sometimes when I played like the vomit stacks, the teams that have low totals that are really yeah. cheap. Uh, I, that's a large field strategy more than a small field strategy. But for the small field stuff, I'm more likely if Dalvin cook is 37% on this week. Like I'm playing the, I'm playing the Vikings passing stack because to me, I'm not saying the Vikings, the Vikings may have the highest total on. I'm not saying that they do badly. I'm just saying they don't score their points the way that everyone thinks they're going to score their points. And to me, that's more valuable in small field than try to bet on the Lions with a, a 16 point total being the top stack of the slate. Like that's that's a once in a blue moon thing that I I'm going to shove in the, the Millie Maker or the slant. But in the small yeah. field, a lot of times I'm looking at I'm really just looking at the top three or four team total type of teams and just going, well, everyone, everyone thinks this and I'm going to do, I'm going to do the direct negative because only one person can score the point. Well, only one person on the team could score a touchdown. So it's like, oh, if everyone's going to the passing game, I'm everyone's playing the cheap stack. Clyde Edwards Hilaire's in my lineup, right? Like that, like those types of lineups. Do you, do you consider leverage like that? Or are you looking more positionally? Like you said with the, everyone's going to play Henry. I'm going to play Aaron Jones. I do it a little bit more positionally or like we talked about, just kind of flipping the build. You know, so if I have a really direct leverage piece, I'll make it like Aaron Jones over Derrick Henry or flipping the build where, uh, you know, I just won't build with an expensive running back and I'll be pretty different than the Derrick Henry teams because they none of them have Devontae Adams and I have Devontae Adams and somebody else. I like where, where you're going with that. I Sometimes I have a tough time that where I'm like, I'm still trying to survive Dalvin Cook being okay, right? And I don't want to get caught in the middle where I took kind of like you'd a rather you'd rather overstack in that. So so what you're saying is you'd rather yeah. have Dal you'd rather have a lineup that like for instance we use the Vikings because like last year they were so condensed, We're so concentrated, right? Yeah. So like I'm the type of person like my mentality comes into if Dal if let's say Cook is gonna, is high owned. I'm going to play, I'm in the small, in the, in the power sweep or something, which is not small, small field, but sm the smallest field that I would play. Uh, I would, pl I would play the Viking stack and, and I would play j j one of Jefferson or Thielen in with Herb Smith or maybe all three, who knows? Uh, you're more likely to play in the small, small, like the juke. You'd play both. You'd go like cousins cook 
Thielen Smith. Like you do something like that where you're still playing the chalked out Cook. Yeah. To, but you're still betting on the entire Vikings offense. So if Cook only has a 12-point game, well, you still have 8% owned Adam Thielen with 30. Yeah. Right. Or I'm just that, hoping to survive. Like sometimes I, or maybe I'll just fade the offense entirely and kind of, I try not to get too too much in the mentality of okay this team has a high team total so we have to take someone from this team. I think sometimes we just want to bet on maybe the offense coming in a little bit lower than that team total, maybe stuff spread out in a way that nobody really kills you sort of thing. So I'm betting against Cook, like I'm fading Cook, he's the chalk piece. The offense is moderately successful. Cook doesn't kill me. You know, he scores 18 points, whatever. It's fine. Even if he scores 20 points, it's fine. And I've just got a completely different build. Sometimes I'm thinking of it that way. I do get in trouble sometimes where in these contests, I know the ownership's going to be really high on a handful of players. And I don't know when to stop getting leverage where I'm like, You're I don't want to play this at once. Right? Yeah. I don't want to play this guy at 50% owned. I don't want to play this guy at 50% owned. I don't want to play this guy at 50% owned. So sometimes I do get in trouble where it's like, Okay, you don't you shouldn't probably fade them all. Even if they are all overowned in a vacuum, probably shouldn't fade all of them at the same time. That's something I'm trying to work on a little bit more where I'm just like, well, I'll take the leverage here. I'll take it here. I'll take it here. And then you get to a point where you, there's just a diminishing point of returns. You already have enough leverage on the field. So you you um, you'd that, rather that's maximize it now though. Right, cuz you're cuz what what you're doing is essentially you're sacrificing more projection even though when you don't need to any i mean like you already have enough leverage to win first place like once you have enough of that you should be now maximizing for projection and if if the top projected lineup has for you to build has a 63 percent on christian mccaffrey then that why shouldn't you i mean that's yeah why why because you're gonna see you're gonna look even if you use like an optimizer or whatever use uh, excel or whatever like you'll you'll see your range of outcomes like go down, but your chances of winning first place, like stay the same because it's yeah. like in a large field, that's what in large field, it'll start going up. But if you're playing a 400 person contest, like once you get like beating the field by 27 points, doesn't do you any good. I mean, like coming in first place, like by 27, like, Oh, look, I lapped the field, like the 27, those 26.9 points. Like you didn't, you didn't need them. Like you didn't, you didn't need that much leverage. You don't, you're, you you do not want right. to have to bet on, on three coin flips to fail. Like you're just betting on two of the three to fail. It's just a matter of which two are you fading. And the difference exactly. between me and you is that I'm playing all those situations <laughs> and you, you have to find the one, right. That that's, that's, that's the hard part of like, like I know, I know that I shouldn't out of these three top, top owned players. I'm only going to play one in a lineup. I need to build three lineups because I need to, I need to fade to the other two. And so I know I, and I could build three separate lineups like that. So what you're saying is that I should just play three high stakes contests, small field. And not like you said, like lower your stakes a little bit. If you need to play three lineups, then play three. But it is funny because Dink and I do this show establish a million on Saturdays where we talk through our GPP process and he's the large field guy. So there are times. Right. right, You probably have conversations where, where, where like, it's like, oh, I like all of it. I'm just going to play all of it, right? And Dink just plays 150 of just all different yeah, things like this. Dink can just set a rule on the optimizer that says max one of these three. 
and I'm here pulling my hair out trying to determine which one. And there are sometimes flip arguments where I'm like, well, I'm fading this guy because he's going to be 60% owned. Good luck figuring out what to do with him in large field tournaments. So it's funny. There are some things that are easier and some things that are harder. But uh, long-term edge-wise in DFS, when it comes to this small field, large field stuff, you have to, you have to, at some point you have to agree that the dead, that, that at what point, I think the exploitation that we're talking about is primarily due to the fact that a lot of sharper players at high volume are not building for contest types. So a lot, a lot of times they may be building 150 lineups as a whole and then putting their top projected or whatever, whatever way they rank them. This one goes into all of these contests. This one goes into all of these contests. These tw- the top 20 goes into 20 max. The top 50 goes into, they're doing something like that. When a lot, a lot of sharp players have automated processes. So we're dealing with people that are running simulations, are running their own projections, doing multiple sites, doing you know, data scraping and all that type of stuff. Is the next level, like to me, all of, the reason why I win through game theory is due to the fact that I use publicly available projections, publicly available ownership. And I'm using these concepts based on people still having this information and just using it wrong. When does Mm -hmm. it get to the point where you're going to be playing the Thunderdome and you're not going to be playing against cash liners? I mean, what the, I I always explain that the reason why these sharp play, because it sounds like if they're so sharp, why are they, why are they playing their cash lineup in the Thunderdome? It's like, well, because it only represents 1% of their volume. So they're, they're they know they're sac. It's not like they don't know what they're doing. They're sacrificing right. they that for, for the more raw money. It's very similar that uh, people will look at, like, for instance, in baseball. Not as much in football, but in baseball, uh, sometimes because there's so many different combinations and stuff, I end up with, like, in a 150 build, my bottom 10 lineups are just brutal. Like, or just like it, the way the combinations went, like it's too low projected. Like it just, the way, the way that all the combinatronics work out, it gives me 10 bad lineups at the bottom. The problem is it's, it's, it's 703. Yeah. Right? Like I need, I need to upload something and I can't, I, I have 10 bad lineups and people would look at those lineups and go, how did you build 10 bad line? Like in order to get me good 140 lineups that are good, I was willing to sacrifice 10. So I think that's more of the, when we see the high stakes, high volume players in the luxury box of the Thunderdome, it's more of a, they know that they're sacrificing, you know, one to 5% of their lineups that aren't necessarily the best for winning those, maybe min cashing, but they're making so much more raw money and everything else that so be it. We're kind of like picking off, we're kind of like feeding off the bottom. But at what point is that where those guys are going to be more, where the edges get small enough everywhere else that that's the next thing of like, well, I need to make sure my luxury box lineup is in my cash lineup. And then where does our edge go then from there? Well, that's where we hope that these people that are playing, you know, hundred thousand dollars plus a week aren't listening to you and me because they don't have the time for it. So no, uh, they listen, they just, uh, from what, I, what I've been told is that it's just, it's not, it's from a, it's, a it's time just not worth their time. It's just not worth yeah. their time. Right. Yeah, and it's I know for myself, like I could be plus EV if I MME'd too and played large field. In theory, I could be plus EV, but I have to keep my focus on like one particular thing. You know, if I get stretched too thin, 
I start to make worse lineups for both. And it's probably like that for them, where if you're a heavy cash player, like you really have to focus on making the best possible lineup that week. And you just have the bankroll to throw this in. So I'm not too concerned short term. I think, I, I guess I should say, I think I, I'm confident that I'll be able to spot it when it happens, just because how similar lineups people are making, it's going to be like the deviation is going to be more between the individual lineups. You know, we're going to get less of these 60 plus owned percent receiver. I guess right now it's so far away. I mean, when you're talking like 60 plus percent owned wide receivers, like, right. It's, it's, it's it like seems really so far, we're far. We're pretty far from the equilibrium. The other thing too, is these high stakes lineups too have guys that just have you know, the wells that have big bank rolls and they want to play and, You'd be surprised, you know, even in the Thunderdome out of 30 teams, there's three to four that are pretty suspect, you know, that's, you'd also be, that's Mike, 10%. Mike, Mike, you'd also be surprised at how some of the more, some, some more known entities in the DFS space are actually not, are, are not actually good players <laughs> to put it lightly. So, so you get 10 per, let's say, I mean, let's say you got 10% of the field that's playing just bad lineups, period. And then even if the other 25 are playing pretty good lineups, but half of those are very similar and like have extreme ownership costs. I just feel like I'm playing a game right now where I'm not competing against 30 people. You know, I'm competing against 15 kind of. And if I'm beating those 15 people, I'm doing really well and the odds of me finishing somewhere in the middle of those people are pretty low. Like I'm going to beat all those 15 teams or I'm not. So there's some variance there, but it's, it's like I'm playing less teams than there are in the field, just the way they're making lineups. So we'll see how it evolves. I'm hopeful, you know, we can get another year or two out of these small field tournaments staying the way they are. I know there's some people that just aren't going to change. You know, they're just playing so much money that the they're Empire not going to change. Empire maker ain't going to change. Yeah. He doesn't give a shit. Like, I mean, and he, and there also are some players right now too that like Empire Maker's probably like he's plus EV in the Thunderdome because his teams are so good. I think he'd be even better if he tweets some things. But did you did you yeah. have his side on that last year's Awesome versus uh, Empire Maker challenge? I did not take a bet on that. Oh, I I I, was, I, 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 I took a losing bet only because I thought Empire Maker was like a minus one fifteen favorite, and he gave me plus one twenty five. So I said, "Fuck it, I'll take it." Right. Yeah, that, but I but once I, I saw I once awesome I saw Alex's old, lineups, I I knew I made a mistake. <laughs> that was kind of how I mean, that that was how I felt a little bit too, where I thought Alex had the better GPP theory, but he, not he, not for a ten, not for a tens. What 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 I, what I said was, if this was a hundred slates, I would make Alex the favorite. In ten slates, I make yeah. I, I, Empire Maker was the. Only because he'd min cash more often, but I thought that uh, I thought Alex went too heavy. I understood his lineups at the end because he needed to bink. Like I mean, he needed to whatever. But he had yeah. one what that Edelman team. I'm like, what? What is that? That was an Edelman team early on, right? I, I, I like I don't. I just I looked at this. I looked at projections. I look. I'm like, like this is. I, I look at the lineup and I go, this is this is a large field GPP lineup. In a contest that has like 17 people in her. So I'm right. Like, like he went a little bit too far with it. I remember that week. Um, so I, I had a similar kind of experience, like taking that contest in as you. But yeah, like Empire Maker, he's plus EV. He's not going to care. He's not going to change. 
if I get three to four people like that that don't care, if there's three to four people, or I should say three to four, I'm like thinking of the Thunderdome, but like even like expanding that to the luxury box, which is, you know, 150, 200 people. If, if you can get around 5% of people that are just making bad lineups and another 15% of people that are just making cash lineups, I think you're in a pretty good spot. And I feel confident those percentages are, are like where they are. Because even if you go down to the $400 juke, people get tight when people who are, let's say we've talked a lot about people with big bankrolls that don't care, but the people with smaller bankrolls that do care, they get, they play tight in these tournaments that, that's when they that, should to, play to me, looser. To me, Mike, I think to me, I've always said that that's the big, I think that's the biggest edge in all of DFS. In, I mean, yeah. in general, it, 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 people that play too safe, it's it, very, very similar to poker. Like my, I make most of my money off of when I played off of weak, tight, players where I could, I, they, they're essentially showing me their range, like every single hand and I could play perfect poker against them because they're not aggressive enough when they should be. And they're too tight when they should. I mean, like, but to me that when, when, when I say dead money in large field GPPs, like, like you said, 5% of the lineups are just like, you're like, this guy isn't even in the league anymore, and they're in their line. Like that, those types of lineups, like 5% of. We don't, we don't quite get that bad in this. Right, I know, but, but yeah. I'm saying, but, <laughs> but ones that have like almost no min cash equity, right? But yeah. then we get 15 to 20% of lineups that are like, that are, that are cash type lineups that are like, oh, like, I, I mean, literally, especially in NFL, if, if, uh, if you put in the ETR optimal, the blitz optimal, the rotor grinders. If you go around, if you go around the industry to all the projection sets, and and it, I mean, I I've, I've tested this before. I, I got I get sick of doing it because it takes a little too much work of going to each set, each place's final projections, and just running a hundred fifty. I could find all of those lineups duped. Right. Right. I mean, like as if someone just went and just pressed the button for 150 and then I could also do it with like the stacks as, as long as a quarterback and wide receiver are together and I could find all of those lines and like, and they're massively dupli and they're, it's, it may be a slightly different defense, right? They're all one B ones and they may be duped six times, but like that encompasses like 20% of the goddamn contest. Like, and these are people that are using tools and I'm like, so that's that. That's the type of stuff where I look at it, it's like I'm using the same information, and I'm not building those lineups. And I could predict those lineups, like other than the 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 the, the, the downside of it's a pain in the ass to try to realize your EV in large field contests. It's 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 like going to the World Series of Poker. There's, there's six thousand people playing, and you look around and you're like, there's three thousand people that are like like. Does a flush beat a full house type of thing? And you're like, <laughs> and then you look at it, a, a, a tournament that's a three table tournament with like all the top players in the world, and you go, well, why why aren't they playing against the three thousand schmucks over here? <laughs> but I know against the three thousand schmucks that some guy will push all in. I'll have you know kings, and they have nines. They hit a set, and I'm gone. I mean, like, like to, and yeah. I have to win those types of things the like four hundred different ways to get to first. Yet in the thirty person tournament, it's like. Yeah, I'm playing against better players, but I could predict their play and I could realize my smaller ROI much better. See, to me, that's the that's been the conundrum of this is the 43rd episode. Like <laughs> almost almost every it, it, it comes up like every other episode, depending on like especially Eric, who plays small field. But I know that you do play small field when I'm talking to other large field people. 
like where I, I feel like like oh we're we're in the same boat together. We 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 both see each other. So so I get mesmerized. I think you get mesmerized by Dink because he's able to play all these lineups, and I'm sitting here going, how could you decide on just one? Like does does Drew say that to you sometimes? I. Uh, he, he doesn't really yeah i mean a little bit he's not so much worried about like how do you decide on just one but he he really likes to be able to make these very logical rules and understand that like over time making these rules he's going to win more money than he's going to lose like like we did the running back example just play one of these three running backs like he likes to be able to do that very structurally and just make just knowing you're making sound teams that over time you're going to win more than you lose. I think his frustration stems less from like looking at what I'm doing and thinking it's a little bit simpler and more from just the top heaviness of the tournament. Right. Well, of you course. know, right. I know we want it to be flatter. He had uh, like his top 1% finishes last year was you know well over 1%. Like it was very good, but he had a stretch where I mean, you, you, if a couple seventh places are seventh instead of first and second, that, that's that could be your whole year. That's, that's what's going on in MLB for me this year. I have 17 top 20 finishes, and I'm down money. I have and I have yeah. a second place finish in there, and I'm still down money. And then in an NFL last year, NFL last year, my November and December were awful. Were all I mean, just all absolutely awful. But uh, when 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 you when you bink the slant, uh, the you know the third week in October, wildly profitable. I if if I compare my NFL seasons. Like if you look at the, just the finishing positions and everything, you'd, you'd be like, like I I shouldn't have been up. I should I, sh- I shouldn't have. Right. Been. And, if, and if I look at my MLB season this year, it's like why aren't you up a hundred thousand dollars instead of down ten thousand? Because it's like my top one percent is like two point two percent, and it's like, like where where's my money? Where's my yeah, money, bitches? <laughs> where for me. The small field stuff, in a way, too, it, it, it's just more enjoyable for me. I don't know, like it's enjoyable. It's just, to me, that's more stressful. I don't know. I I got pretty stressed, like running, you know, optimal lineups with my rules, and then making sure my exposures were where I wanted them, and then rerunning on news and stuff. Like I, I feel like I'm a little bit more fluid, and I'm a little bit less stressed under the gun making like five to six hand built teams. I just look, I don't I, know. I, I look I look at one lineup and go. Okay, I got to pick one. And it's like, well, I mean, I'm playing 150 lineups into this $9. I'm picking them all. So it's like, as long as one, I, they're all not correlated to each other, they're all diversified. They're all, if it comes, they're all correlated and everything like that. So if this game goes off, I got it, something here. If that game gets off, I got something there. And now you're telling me, it's like, okay, here's, here's, a, here's a $1,500 entry, right? Which represents like, like, a fifth of my entire volume on the slate. And it's like, uh, do you, do you choose Joe Mixon or James Connor? Like some six K running back. And like, I know I got to play one of these guys and I think three of them so are under own. It goes right though. It feels so good when it goes right. Cause you kind of know you're going to get paid off. Like, like large field MME, you have some, you don't know if you're going to get paid off necessarily, right? Like your edge case can hit and it's still, you don't, you don't have the I'm perfect in small field. Yeah. Right? Like, I think that's the, that's the tilt that you don't, you, that you don't like that I've gotten used yeah. to. Like you, you, if you, you've probably, if you've tried to play people out there, if they, you play 150, you play, it doesn't have to be 150, a lot of lineups. Uh, Cause it happened to me on M- MMA this past, this past uh, 
weekend. I had a good MMA week because I won the 555. I tied with Empire Maker, of course, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> in the 555 that I built with the right strategy. I built 100 lineups, all leaving like tons of money on the table, purposely faded a couple of, under on a couple of guys, over on whatever. The winning lineup is a, because obviously you have to play MMA like showdown, right? You need the nut lineup. And it, if you don't, it's going to be tied 74 different ways. Uh, and the lineup that I built a hundred lineups that looked exactly like the optimal lineup that won a hundred thousand dollars solo. It just so happened that I didn't, I built a hundred lineups like that. I just didn't happen to have that one. Right. Right. To me, that's to me, that may be the, the tilt where strategically you could have, get all the edges and say, here are the three or big three or four biggest edges. I'm going to make 150 lineups like that. And unbeknownst to the to the stupid people that think you could cover all your bases, uh, you can't anywhere come close to covering all your bases on 150 lineups. <laughs> no, you most definitely right. I thought I, I thought all of this was I got everything perfect. I thought these all these underowned guys went off, all these I just didn't have that combination, right? You look and some doof doofus defense scores 34 points at two percent down. It's like like, yes, I have five lineups with them, but I don't have them with the other guys. And you're looking and you're going, you're looking at the milliet in, in, in 58th place going, right. I built the right way. And then you look, you lost money. Like you got everything, you got quote, everything right. And you look and you lost money. Yeah, that's, that's a tough feeling. But that, but that to me, but the, to me, that's less of a tough feeling than I built one. I, I knew the three, four spots to go. But the one lineup that I built in the $1,500 contest wasn't the one. The one that I built right. for the $12 single entry one was, right? Like that. Oh, great. I got 400 bucks there, but I, I lost 1500 in this contest. It's like you got you got to get that one lineup right. But I guess people do it. So th There are more people that play a single lineup or three lineups than they, they play 150. So maybe I'm weird. that Because I, I get so many questions, right? In single, right? Because people ask me, single entry. Do you play this guy or this guy? Which I always hate those questions. But yeah, it's like, those are so tough. Right. But the point is, it's like, well, the, the projection versus leverage, obviously, in the first part. But the main thing is that, like, don't put yourself in that situation. Just like, well, play one in one lineup and play one in the other lineup. It's like, well, I, I only want to play one lineup. Like, I don't want to play one lineup. It, this, this game is way <laughs> too varied for me to play one lineup. Got to have a little bit of gamble in you, I guess. I have gamble. Yeah. But it's like picking one. Like, if you're going to pick one stock to go up 10 points today, and that's it. And that's all, like... Pick one? I no, I'd, I'd rather spread it around so I don't. I is that a bankroll management thing? I mean, I mean, I know you, I you, I know you guys with Holka and and Pete. Like how? Here, here's a here's a good question. How was that? Uh, the mentality of what, what, what? This is what I felt from you guys because I know you guys won. So you had all three: Joe Holka, you, and Pete Overzet. I feel as if. Uh, you are more you're more willing to, to accept risk for the reward, but you're still cognizant of like some type of bankroll management. I don't know about Holka, but it seems like Pete treated it like it was free money. When I expected <laughs> when I expected it to be the other way around, I expected Pete to be the one since he doesn't really play for a living to be like, well, we want all this money. Let's 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 pocket. Let's 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 take a bunch of money off the table. And then like play with house money, and it seemed like Pete was more of the, the let's 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 play this every let's, week and let's double down and like 
Well, it, once you experience winning a small field tournament with a team that's not that good, like <laughs> you, you, you get you get a little irrationally confident because you're like, wow, I, I can win these tournaments and make mistakes. I mean, the week we won early on. Also, it helps when you win early in the season like you did with your slant. We won the 1500 early in the season and we, we did it with a zero in our lineup. You know, we took a chalk Troutman at zero at tight end. Oh, I remember that week. A good old. And thank, being thank able you. To he was 47 percent owned in cash games. I was thought this was nuts. Yeah, it was wild. Uh, but we survived it. Probably a little bit of a donkey pick. Joe is definitely on your train of thought where he's very worried when we do like, let's say we do an entry in the 1500 and then three in the juke. That's 400. He is paranoid. We're gonna play the wrong entry in the fifteen hundred versus. Yeah, but the I'm, I'm, see, I'm not that. I'm not that paranoid. No, I mean, okay, I'm not that paranoid. It's it's more of the fact of I'm not even playing in those contests at all, right? Because yeah. like like I'm I'm like I'm playing like my my entries are gonna be in the power sweep and the spy, like where it doesn't like if I'm playing like on an NFL weekend last year I was playing between like seventy five hundred and ten thousand in volume. Cause I, cause I play primarily in cash games. Right. So like, like six to 7,000, seven to eight, like somewhere around there would be just in cash games. And then like, okay, well, a hundred dollars spy, $150 power sweep. Like it's, it's 1.5%, 1% of my total volume. Like, I don't mind. Yeah. Okay. What's, what's the number one thing that I want to do this week? Okay. I could put it in there. I could put it in there. So what, when it's the luxury box, that's now that's 15%. Now it's, it's it's more relative percentage of how much I'm playing than like the the how much it is or how many lineups I have. Right. So I feel like if if I have if I'm playing three entries into the power sweep, there's two power sweeps, there's two spies, right? And they're not small, small. There's still like three to four thousand entries. Like I feel like okay, I can make five lineups and not and not feel as if I'm that invested because it's only five percent of my volume. But if I was but if I was playing be, the Thunderdome, you're already playing cash and playing MME. At that point, you've got a lot of bases covered. Why not take all those sweep entries at that point and put them into one fifteen hundred entry and like really increase your odds of a super meaningful bank? Why not do both? Maybe I'll do both. Well, I mean, if you want to raise your bankroll, that's yeah. But no, that's fine with me. I may do both. I think you, you may do you it. may see me in the luxury box this season. <laughs> just don't make smart teams i'm gonna have to come on here and well i'm not gonna i'm not gonna be putting my cash team in you could you could think that <laughs> but 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 with pete like with like the, the thing that like i know joe is more like that but why to me it seemed it seemed like pete should be the op like especially now 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 that he quit he quit his job do you do you think that that that's the difference though like last year he was doing the bankroll challenge he was doing but he still had his his, 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 his normal job. So it's like anything that he made in DFS was just like, like funny money. Like, do you think this year that if you, if you do, if you, if you do that, if you work together, that'll be, he'll be much more likely that if you win early, it's like, let's just withdraw some of this. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think if we, he, maybe if we lose early, like that's when people I think get tight. But when I think he, he's like me, when we win, I don't know. It's, the, the only that thing that I could see him not withdrawing it is if, if there if there's a bit that's worth doing. I, well, that, that's I mean, the one thing I respect about Pete. Three guys, he'll do something for the bit and then lose 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 it all over the course of the season. Right, <laughs> this is the bit. No, he'll he, he's pretty risk tolerant. Peter, he's 
Joe, Joe's getting on our train of thought too. I think part of it is like you end up getting to a point where you have these, a pretty realistic shot of winning some super meaningful money. If you can, you know, if you bank a tournament early and you can run it up playing these types of tournaments, because if you're playing an even, I think with the one we might've won was like a 50 person tournament. Like it's, it's not that crazy. You win a couple of those a year, you know, it's like, it's like one in 50, like you're probably not going to, but like you could win a couple of those a year if you ran super pure. And I think there's this sense that when you're up, you know, there's just these, these opportunities at these small fields to like have like, like a one in 50 tournament, like you've already got a 2% shot of winning that tournament just based on randomness. Whereas if you're scaling back and playing in even larger field tournaments, I know the EV and the ROI is not necessarily different, but it's, it's a little bit of a different feeling, you know, right or wrong. It feels a little different. Yeah. But they, but they are two completely different games. The, the, yeah. the last, the last thing on that, on that note is that because of their two different games, I think, I think a lot of the content, do you, do you, do you believe that there's not enough content that distinguishes between the two? Because the, 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 the thing that like, we see these screenshots, this, this is what always gets me to, to beat, to, to win a large field contest and to win the Thunderdome, no matter what the raw money is, it's much harder to win a large field GPP. Like you mentioned, you have a 2% shot at winning a 50-person contest just based on randomness. That be, because you can be wrong more, you don't have to be perfect. You don't mm -hmm. even have to have a perfect strategy. You don't even have to have perfect projection because common sense, I mean, most of projections, like I could, I could look on an NFL week before I even look at any type of projection set. And I could look and go, this guy shouldn't be 3,800, right? Yeah. This guy, this guy shouldn't be 6,200. This quarterback shouldn't be 5,800. Like, like you just intuitively know. And because you know the variable, you're doing all that variable work in your head and then you get to the projection. Then typically it, it it's close to that, right? You're not going to be, Oh, I can't believe that this guy projects well. But like, you're not shocked or anything that, uh, we get, uh, into this notion like, I think this is where it's perpetuated more that, I mean, I, I, you're, you're on my side. I mean, you, you, you do analytics for, for, for ETR. We're, we're both numbers people. So the type of thing where like the, the, the watch the tape folks, like, well, in large field, there's a lot of randomness. So some ran, some rando lineup could win. That's not a stack. That's random people. It's a negative EV lineup, but there's, there's 200,000, 300,000 lineups. Some random fucking lineup could easily win. And in small field, lineups that don't have leverage or don't like don't conform to much game, like Empire's Maker Cash lineup could win the Thunderdome. It's, not, it's most likely the highest projected lineup or one of the highest yeah. projected lineups that those, that gap between small field, large field, cash game, whatever, like it seems like people... At least the audience, from my view, treats it too much of the same and not that these are completely different games. And if 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 for instance, if you bink the the luxury box and you just played the luxury box all year and you binked it three times, and someone said, uh, I'm building uh, uh 20 millimaker teams, can you help me? It's quite possible that you can't build 20 good millimaker teams. Like, like 
The difference between what yes. you play and what they play is so dramatically different that, like you said in the very, we said in the very beginning, the types of lineups that you're building are completely different than. So to ask what are you doing, what does that matter? Like you, you need to be able to assess what they're playing, and then there aren't that many people that are the greatest at all different types of form. No, or, or different types that's, of formats. That's kind right? of why I've like focused on what I have been is because like you get more specialized and it's just easier to mentally focus on one thing. And when Dink and I do the show, I would agree, first of all, that there's not enough separation in general in the content. That's something Dink and I try to do a lot because, and it works out naturally because he's pretty much doing all large field and I'm doing all small field, kind of like you and Eric have a similar dynamic. So it's a little bit easier for you to draw a distinction. But if you're just watching an average show, it's like, oh, you know, this guy's a GPP play this week. And it's like, well, what does that mean? Well, yeah, what does that just mean? Means not, it just means not a cash. To me, I just view it as not a cash play. Yeah. And right? it's not, funny, a cash, not a median lineup. When a bad lineup wins the Millie, it's guys that you probably shouldn't have played because they weren't good plays. And when a bad lineup wins the Thunderdome, it's guys that you shouldn't have played because they were overowned, not because they weren't good plays. Right. I, I laugh when I see the like the luxury box. If the top ten to fifteen scores are all really tight, like I probably lost that week, you know, because it's it's just people playing similar lineups with a couple points of separation on some one v ones. But yeah, I think we need to be more specific with our advice with with this type of stuff. It, it's is such a different game, and I even have times with the large field tournament where I. The chalky but not uber chalk players that, again, I said, like, for me, it's easy to fade in the small field because they're 60% owned and not 30. Like, I, I sometimes tell Dink, like, I don't know what I would do if I was in your shoes playing MME. Like, I don't know what I would play. You know, I'd probably end up matching the field. And I'm well, if, you, if you're considering yourself, if I mean, if you're looking at exposures for a lineup set as a whole, but you'd look right. at this, but, but that's but that's where the that's where the play whoever you want type of thing that I say where it's like, yeah, is he overowned? Is he underowned? He's not overly overowned, and if he's underowned, he's not overly un- like he's close enough to efficient that you could play him. You could not play. I mean, like it's it's it, it, it's neutral. So it's like depending on the lineup he's in. You show me some chalk lineup that has the chalk that don't play Derrick Henry in that lineup. You show me some. I'm playing some vomit stack somewhere. And I'm playing up for Henry and McCaffrey that are both going to be tra- fine that, uh, right. in that line. But that's, you have to show me the lineup first in order to, to determine that. Yeah. Now in the instances, like you said, when someone is drastically under or over owned, you almost don't have to show me the lineup. You just say like, it's so it, they're so massively EV in a vacuum to play that I'd lean to playing more lineups with those guys. It doesn't have to be in every lineup, but if I had one line, if, if someone had a gun to my head and said, I have one, you have one lineup to play. Right, I'm playing the luxury box, right? I hate playing that one lineup. But you're gonna force Mike, you're forcing me to. And it's like, who do you play? I'm gonna look for the most massively plus EV single player and build my lineup around that. That's, that see, that's what end. I like doing. That's and that's the difference. Like I like doing that more than I like saying, like, oh, you know, 98% of these players are, you know, roughly efficiently owned. Like I have my brain has a tough time with that. That's why I do have a few weeks a year where I'll play MME, but usually it's because I see like a specific edge and I just want to go all in on it where I feel like it, the, the rewards are a little bit more outsized in MME than it is. So there was you, a week so you lock button people in MME. 
but I don't play MME every week. I'll play it like two oh, or but, three but times when, a But year. when you do, like you, you, I mean, you legitimately lock people. Yeah, I did a, I did it twice last year. They were both wildly unsuccessful because I was wrong. But I, there was, I think it was Philly and the Rams. I don't know. There was a stack that I thought wasn't worth playing in the really small field tournaments, but I thought it had a ton of leverage and it made a lot. It, I thought the leverage I was getting made a lot more sense in large field tournaments than small field. And I just ran 150, you know, game stacks of, of that. that. Of, wow. Just to, you, well, you know, you know so, you're burning money. I mean, you know, you're burning. I mean, it's the type of thing where either you're going to, you're going to, you're not only going to win, you're going to come in second. You're going to come in fifth. You're going to come in eighth. Like to, I don't to, know if it's the smartest thing to do, but that, no, no, that's well, how it's, my brain operates, though. It's like from, I, from a bankroll wanna... management perspective. Like it, to me, it's not that there's nothing wrong with doing that. Like you, you believe those are the top plus 150 plus EV lineups. They just all happen to be one v ones of each other or two v twos of each other. The thing is that they're all all the lineups are correlated to one another, which means yeah, your, your lineups are all, all going to be here wherever they are. They're all going to be close together. So like. If you're going to do that, typically, just, I mean, just like any financial person would say, that the more risk that you're taking on, just it has to represent less of your bank, like if less of your bankroll. So it's like if you want to do, like if I, you could do that in general, but I, if if you're playing ten percent of your bankroll and doing that, I'd say you're going to go broke very quickly. Yeah, and I'm not doing that, like I said, every week, but sometimes there is like an edge. Every now and then there is an edge case where I think. This is a little thin for small field, but man, if it hits in large field, like I, and this comes back to why I play small field in the first place though, is I like to get paid off when I'm right. So that's kind of the, you know, I find this edge case. I want to go all in on it. And if I'm right, I want to get paid off. If I'm not, you know, I, I knew that risk going in. Right. I, I remember tilting fucking overs at the, the year before with the fucking lions and the fucking spy or whatever, but that was the Marvin Jones four touchdown game. And he was like, he was like 2% owned in the spy and I had stayed the lion stack and like no one was playing, but I had everything else around. Like, like people look mm -hmm. at those lineups and they go, well, how did you choose the lions? It's like, did you look at the rest of the lineup? Like it was, <laughs> it was chalks. Like essentially it was like, it was like a lion's three man stack and like the chalkiest fucking guys everywhere else. Cause I knew the lions were going to be like 1% owned. Yeah. And it's like, it's not about the Lions. It's about how did you make that lineup as a whole? And it just so happened, how could I play all of the chalk in one lineup and still be dramatically different? That's the, it. That's the way to do it. Sometimes it doesn't work out that way, but yeah. it just so happened to be the cheap Lions and it correlated with something else. And uh, that's on a week-to-week -week basis, you have to figure, I mean, like like we said, we're, we're, we're the edgelords. The edge lords. I like it. Do you want to be called an edge lord? What isn't? What actually is? Is that a sexual term? <laughs> All I know not. is that it's said on like 4chan or something. A person who affects or a provocative or extreme persona, especially online, typically used of a man. Is that really what it is? I don't like it anymore. I don't know. I thought an edge lord was something. Edge lord sounds something that you're you're in like like a dominatrix in a dungeon somewhere or something. Is it not? I, we're out of my uh, realm of expertise at this point. Oh, no, it's an, a, someone in an internet forum who deliberately talks about controversial, offensive, taboo, or nihilistic subjects in order to shock others. Oh, you're kind of nihilistic. Play whoever yeah, you want. Right. So I'm. That works. Right. So are you not an edgelord? <laughs> I'm a little nihilistic. Okay. Yeah. So, so we're the edgelords. 
I'm very nihilistic in season long fantasy for sure. Oh, in season long. Oh, so you still play season long? Oh yeah, I, I like doing it. I mean, it's you more like fun, the things so. that take too much time and, and aren't as efficient money wise. <laughs> <laughs> so even with bet, even with bet, so you're playing season long. You're playing 700 slow drafts and best ball. I do a lot of season long. Do you just but. play like the main event or something and F- I'll do like, yeah, I'll do like a few high stakes leagues, um, like three to five high stakes leagues probably. And usually I co-manage where I got help on waivers and stuff. But I mean, fr- from a long-term perspective, you have to, you have to admit that from, if you're using this purely thinking financially from a money-making perspective, season long fantasy has to be like the least efficient way to make money. Oh, I know the edge is probably pretty big. It's just, you're just not going to make a lot of money doing it, but you, you can make plus EV bets and not have, you know, if I do one high, if I do three high stakes drafts, like that's not a whole ton of time. Right. And but I think I'm pretty plus EV in them. But if you had a choice, Mike, the, the three versions of the game, season, yeah. season long fantasy, best ball daily DFS. Well, and I gave, and I gave you a $50,000 bankroll. But you could only play one of those three formats. Which would you play? I'd play daily. Okay, so there you go. There's the answer. See? I mean, there's seven. There's 17 slates a year versus one. Well, right? you also got the showdowns. So Yeah, and the showdowns. And the Thanksgiving slate. <laughs> and the Saturday last of the season. So That's the- one of the biggest differences, though, is, yeah, the amount of slates. Like, the season long is one slate, even though you're only playing against your league. Like, it's one slate. No, so. I'm not saying to play one late. Like, it, let's say, let's change the question. I don't know if you understood it. You have $50,000, but I mean, you could play 500 well, leagues. I, get I still want. wouldn't want to like, I wouldn't want to put all $50,000 on one slate. So even if it's mm. multiple leagues, it's it's one slate. Like one, you know, Travis Kelsey had an absurd year last year. Like that, that'll change the win rates dramatically. I mean, the same thing in DFS on a given week, but we have many, many of those weeks throughout the year to... You'll but but smooth that out a little bit. But you could see, but you could see from why you're answering the question that you have one slate because best ball is the same way. If they could make best ball into where I could get 17 slates, I'd be more. Once you be, the more sample size, the more right. we extend this, the more your skill advantage, you know, perpetuates itself. So that's why I look at best ball and go, if they could make best ball where I could play, not just one slate. Like it would to me, it would make it much more worthy of a investment to me because it's money that would be coming out of what I'd be playing in DFS. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Two hats, one mic. Uh, I, I'm assuming you've had that Twitter name for when? When was when? Would, did when did two cups? When did two girls one cup come out? When since oh, whenever that? that this was on a DK live show with uh, David Kitchen and Al Zeidenfeld. Is how this came about. Um, I STL cards. I think I stole his hat at some live event in which I was very, very drunk taking over an open bar and I was wearing two hats and so somehow two hats. One Mike was born out of that live event. We can follow you on Twitter there and you're at, you're at ETR now, obviously tons, ton of content preseason. We got the hall of fame game coming up. Who doesn't like some preseason first, first week preseason showdown DFS for five hundred thousand dollars or whatever's in the prize pool, <laughs> uh, so I'm assuming I'm assuming you're grinding the preseason DFS also, right? I'm probably going to in some way. I haven't decided yet exactly what I'm going to do, but Cody uh, does a lot of great showdown work. He's 
looked at the, the preseason past, like Hall of Fame showdowns and stuff, and and then Levitan lives for preseason DFS. This is his. What, his what's baby, the shower so. narratives this year? Are there any shower narratives? I don't know. I'm gonna have to find out over the next week. We only have one game this week, right? Right. It's, next, it's the Hall of Fame game, and the then Hall then they start the pre. Right. It's only one, and then yeah, then the week, whatever. But I mean, to me, to me, it's weird to say there's more edge in preseason cash games. That's what I was thinking. I was gonna play actually. Um, I have to see. I, I maybe people do. wise up to how to play cash games for preseason, but all I know is that when I played them like uh, two years ago, uh, like. It's it it's almost auto wins sometimes. Wow, that's crazy. I mean, so as you look at you're playing head, to, I put up all these head to heads, and then I would just I would look at the lineups and go, unless all these guys get touchdowns, like there's no chance you're going to beat me. Like like, because we we all I mean, because running backs and wide receivers aren't going to see the field often enough. To, yeah. That uh, maybe the last preseason game, and then you also you also get ten percent of the field that plays the guys that are literally not going to play. That are that are on the sideline in their street clothes, right? Right. But I want to see. I want to see if that happens. Maybe. Maybe that. Maybe that goes away. But who knows? Uh, but your ETR establish the run. Uh, you could sign up there for uh, for for. Ever. It's, it's it's the same crew. You got anyone new? I know. I know Wiggins is still there for football. You got Silva. You got uh, no. Yeah, went to NBC, and Corain went to formerly known as Roto World Place. Yeah, Cranes at NBC Sports Edge. We have Anthony Amico doing our dynasty rankings, uh, filling over there now. Jack Miller has been doing some really good stuff, so I I'm excited for the year. We we've got a good crew. Uh, the main four, main five, I should say for NFL are me, Dank, Silva, Levitan, Wiggins. It's a it's a pretty good crew. We got all angles covered, so I'm excited for the season. And when it comes to knowing actual football, I'm I'm I'm, I'm on board. I'm on board with that. But of course, uh. I'll, I'll, I listen, I listen to the podcasts. I, I watch the shows. It's, it, this is why I know something, right? Normally, if, it, <laughs> if this was two years ago, I would literally have no idea who's on what team until like the Thursday before the first slate of the regular. I just like, what does it matter? Is there any slates going? I see the training report. Who cares? Patrick Mahomes had three picks in practice. Oh no, his ADP dropped. I, I hope that, I hope that happens. So establish the run.com two hats, one mic on blender at blender HD, Jordan Cooper, the co-author of the theory of daily fantasy sports, which you can pick up at theory of DFS.com.